This is the Road Trekking Podcast with your host, Jimmy James. It's a show about my trip from Ontario to British Columbia and back in a vintage 92 camper van. And I invite you to come along for the ride. Welcome to episode 10, Nelson to Abbotsford. This little piece of the recording actually has been recorded in post-production, and I want to apologize to all my listeners out there. Uh, It has been some time since I've uploaded an episode, and there are good reasons, which I'm going to tell you in a moment. But uh, it has been a while since I've uploaded an episode, and I want to say that I'm sorry, and I'm making a commitment to upload at least one episode a week from now on, because there are lots of adventures to come on this trip. Now, the reason why uh, I wasn't uploading episodes as quickly as I could have been was because I was all wrapped up in this trip, and uh, this is a spoiler alert, so for anybody out there listening, cover your ears if you want to know, but I did complete the trip and made it alive. So um, there are a couple of pluses, and that is that now I'm able to produce the audio uh, in a better environment. I'm not sitting in my van trying to play around with it. So hopefully the audio quality will be a little bit better, and I'm going to have a little bit more time for editing. So any clumsy sentences and stuff like that, I'll be able to take that out. Uh, Unless that's what you guys like. And then in which case I'll leave it in. Anyway, uh, on to the trip log. Total kilometers traveled 6,467 with my current location being Abbotsford, British Columbia. GPS coordinates. I don't know. And maintenance costs still sitting at about $800 for the trip so far, which uh, is pretty good considering how far I've gone in this old vehicle. Last we spoke, uh, I was in uh, Kokanee Creek Provincial Park, and I had spent the previous day fishing on uh, Kokanee Lake and caught some caught some cool fish there and the locals were really excited about that and I was able to uh, tour around uh, the town of Nelson and the uh, northern town of Caslow and sort of check those out and making some comparisons uh, to what the stories had sort of been over the years in terms of uh, <clears throat> Nelson having a bit of a hippie vibe and uh, Caslow being a smaller town. Um, anyway, I set out the next morning with the goal of reaching Osoyoos, which actually I think is one of the only uh, true desert climates in Canada. Pretty interesting. I headed out from the park uh, on the 3A south through the little town of Slocan and the town of Castlegar, and uh, and then I took a southern detour into the town of Roslyn. Now, Slocan is an old mining town, a very small population, kind of wink and you miss it. Castlegar is a bit larger of a city. It's where the Kootenai and the Columbia Rivers meet. Uh, the Kootenai obviously coming from Kootenai Lake, and the Columbia coming on its way south uh, from Slocan Lake. So, as I'm going along the highway here, the 3A follows the Kootenai River, and I was able to get some really nice views and cast a line in a few spots. Didn't really catch anything, um, but I continued along. I took a little bit of a detour off the 3A and had headed south along Highway 22 into a town called Rosland. Now, the reason why I did this is because one of the bartenders at the brew pub in Nelson had told me this was sort of like one of the up-and-coming 
towns uh, in the area. And as I understand it, it is a hot spot for mountain bikers and people doing skiing and snowboarding in the winter. Now, <clears throat> the town was not uh, what I expected. First of all, uh, they say that it's located in the Monashi Mountains, and I've, I've never heard what that is. I don't, I'm not really familiar with it. It has a population of only around 4,000, um, but they do say that this is sort of the next up-and-coming place. I don't want to blow it up, and I think it probably won't after you hear my take on it. The whole town is literally built on a slant. It's partway up a mountain slope almost. Uh, it had some cool shops, but not a whole lot of stuff. I, I did stop there and I ate lunch at a sort of a gastropub style restaurant. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought that there didn't seem to be much special about the town. It seemed like sort of like a, a wayward town in the mountains. But perhaps the bartender was correct and maybe there's a scene going on that wasn't obvious to me just passing through. Anyway, I continued uh, from there north up back onto Highway 3 and noticed that on basically every uphill climb, my van was in danger of overheating. I would watch the temperature gauge climb from about one-third, where it would normally sit, to two-thirds, and then I would just stop and take a break. And unfortunately, that's the best strategy that I could come up with at the time, because the temperature was quite warm outside, and I was scared that the van was over, going to overheat. The other thing is that these vans are carrying a lot of weight for what they are. I mean, it is a one-ton van, but it only has that little 318 or 5.2 liter motor, and it's a lot to ask for it to uh, take all that weight up the mountain. So I just wanted to be really easy on the motor. So I would just sort of stop periodically and let the van cool down and then continue along my way. As I started to approach the Okanagan Valley, uh, the temperature and the scenery changed drastically. So the pine-covered mountains and the snow-capped peaks that I could see uh, in the Kootenai Valley and where Lake Kootenai is and around Nelson and that became replaced by mountains that were covered in, I don't know, the, the only thing that I could really describe it as is like scrubland, uh, brown hillsides that are dotted with, uh, you know, the odd pine tree or green bush, but otherwise... Uh, just brown grasses and brown bushes, and it was really starting to heat up. It was getting hot out. By the time I arrived uh, into Osoyoos, um, the temperature had climbed from around 25 degrees Celsius to 35 degrees Celsius, according to my outdoor temperature gauge. So that's quite a difference. My host was really interesting. Uh, they lived in the town of Osoyoos, but not really in the town. They lived sort of a, a little ways outside of it, up on the side of a hill. And that hill, uh, you come down as you approach the town uh, on Highway 3. So uh, in this particular area, it's, and it's neat, all the different neighborhoods have animal carvings uh, at the beginning of the street. So there'll be like a moose or a uh, uh mountain lion or an eagle or something like that, which I thought was really neat. But uh, I pulled into the host's house and I was greeted by them. 
And I just sort of started to get adjusted because, like I said, there was a big difference in the temperature and also in the way that the landscape and everything was. I felt like I was coming out of, uh, you know, like a mountainous terrain into sort of like a weird kind of a deserty area almost. Now, Osoyoos is a, is a really neat little town. Uh, it has a population of only about 5,500, according to Wikipedia, but it felt like a lot more. Uh, this town was really busy, and it was clear that there was a lot of tourism traffic there. Uh, one side of the town is just sort of a regular town, and then on the other side, on the east side, it is a First Nations reserve called Black Sage. And, you know, you're really into the Okanagan Valley when you're into this town. I mean, you can tell the temperature, the climate, it is completely different than anything that I had seen on my way here. The town also borders on Washington State. And if you can picture the town, there is an Osoyoos Lake that sits basically on in the middle of the town uh, with the First Nations Reserve on the east side and the regular traditional town on the west side. But to the south, the lake continues and it continues down into Washington. So I'm assuming a lot of the tourists are probably Americans coming up, taking advantage of the inexpensive Canadian dollar. The name uh, actually comes from the local uh, Okanagan language, Soyuz, meaning a narrowing of the waters, which is interesting because there is actually a spit of land in the town which comes out and almost divides the lake in two. From where I was staying the night, I had an awesome view overlooking the town and I was well up above it. I decided not to go into the main town that evening. It was a rather long drive that day and a little bit harrowing with the temperatures and stuff of the van. So I tucked in for the night and the next morning I decided to explore the town and check out the beach. So I didn't really realize this. I mean, I know I had a good view over the town, but from where my host was, we were still well over a thousand feet uh, of descent down into the Okanagan Valley until I hit the town proper. Um, I took my time going down the hill using the gears of the van to slow me down. It was as steep as any mountain pass that I had gone through to this point. Uh, I was really surprised that this road leading into the town was that steep and that treacherous, considering that uh, even though this is, I, th I think it's the warmest place in Canada, uh, they still do get snow, and they certainly, a thousand feet or two thousand feet above the town proper, they would have much different conditions in the winter. So I, I was very surprised by that. Uh, I headed directly down into the town, into the main public beach, where I quickly jumped in the water and cooled off. Uh, it was really clear at this point that the town was dominated by tourists the the public beach has a set of i don't know if it's a motel or condominium or something right there and they sort of occupy a portion of this public beach and that being said though there is a nice part of the beach uh, just to the south of where those condominiums are where you're able to just you can you can park your car at the parking lot for i think there's a grocery store and a liquor store stuff like that walk down to the beach jump in for a dip and lots of people just sort of hanging around lounging enjoying the weather and uh, definitely cooling off in the water after i cooled off at the beach i decided to drive around the town a little bit and somebody had mentioned that the home hardware 
was something I had to check out. Now, normally I wouldn't think that a home hardware would be something worth seeing on a trip, but uh, they convinced me that it's very unique and I've never seen anything like it. So I headed over to the home hardware and I took a look around and yeah, it I've never seen a hardware store like this. Uh, they have all kinds of crazy stuff in there. I don't want to spoil it for anybody that's going there, but this is a really neat store. I, I'm not quite sure why it's like that, but uh, you'll find all kinds of stuff there that you won't see at any other hardware store. That is for sure. After I finished up uh, touring around the hardware store, I decided I would take a little, little bit more of a drive uh, into Oliver, which is sort of, in a way, I guess the next town north um, of Osoyoos. So you head up uh, Highway 97 towards Oliver, and then I started passing fruit stands. Um it's like fruit stand after fruit stand after fruit stand, selling everything from cherries to peaches to you name it, they had it. And eventually I caved, I stopped at a fruit stand and I picked up a, a I think a pint or a quart or something of these local cherries, which by the way, I was told uh, by this time in the season, generally the cherries would be done, but because it had been an unseasonably wet spring, the cherry season got prolonged. Anyway, the cherries were absolutely delicious. And from the amount of fruit that you can see at all these uh, fruit stands, it's no wonder that this is sort of known, you know, the Okanagan Valley is known as sort of a wine, uh, super wine area in Canada. And you can also see vineyards off to the left and the right as you drive down the road. You can see all the grapevines pinned up and also fruit orchards, all kinds of stuff growing in there. What I thought that was interesting is a lot of the people had mentioned that, you know, as I had just said, uh, they had a, a wetter season than normal. And a lot of people said, oh, yeah, the valley is looking a lot greener than it normally does. And yet when I looked up the hillsides, they were essentially brown. There was just the odd green bush or something. So I'm assuming that maybe the hillsides are completely brown <laughs> during, during this time normally in the year. I'm not sure, but apparently to them, that was it's greener than normal. Um, really, to me, it looked like, like a desert, like this whole area kind of looked like a desert oasis where you're just surrounded by this deserty scrubland, but then there's this glistening lake or river, depending on where you are, running down the valley. And many of the houses are on the steep mountain sides. And because the the bottom of the valley is dominated by fruit growing, and as such People don't really have lawns around here, which I thought was really interesting. Like, for instance, my host had a lawn area of gravel, um, but everything else on the property was just wild. There was nothing to cut. So I checked out Oliver for a little while, and it's just a small town, really typical of the area. Uh, nothing super special to see there other than 
what I've already mentioned in terms of the overall uh, environment in the area. And that that is quite neat. Uh, I was hot. I was ready to head home. So I turned around and I headed back the way that I came um, down through the town and uh, back through Osoyoos and then up that big climb to my host's house. And that that was a really hard one on the van, especially considering the temperature. Um, I didn't think my van was going to make it up. I could literally just watch the temperature gauge climbing as I went up this hill. Nonetheless, I made it and got back to my host's house and we had a little bit of a chat. Um, It was interesting because um, they were a little bit concerned about... uh, I guess security or something. I don't know. Um, I told them I was going to be heading out early in the morning and they said, yeah, well, we would prefer if you could be uh, gone early as well um, because there's a lot of break-ins apparently in the area and they were heading out. The area did not seem like a break-in prone area, but then again, who knows? Um, There's obviously a lot of money in these areas. It's sort of a wine uh, country type place. And, you know, maybe people are breaking into houses and stuff. Anyway, no bother. Uh, I hit the sack for the night and headed out early the next morning on my way to Kelowna. I meandered my way up Highway 97 again through the orchards and vineyards, little towns. And at one point, I took a road uh, to the east that was called Black Sage. And I thought it looked a little bit more off the beaten path. Um, But once I got onto the other side of the river into the First Nations territory, it's essentially the same Uh, There's just lots of vineyards, lots of orchards, uh, this sort of thing going on. There wasn't a whole lot to see there. Now, as you continue on up, uh, you pass through a few other little towns, and they're all quite cute. Um, There is Penticton, which is a, a nice little town, then through a town called Summerland, and then through my favorite little spot, uh, which is called Peachland, which is just south of Kelowna. Now, the reason why Peachland was my favorite spot was it was not as busy as everywhere else, and it didn't seem to be as dominated by the orchards and vineyards. It seemed maybe like a nice little place where you could just go to relax. It wasn't as touristy, didn't have as many people as some of the towns further south. Keep in mind that all these towns are following Osoyoos Lake, which really seems like more of a river, basically, uh, in the valley uh, as you travel north. I didn't try fishing in the lake. I, I just, it was too hot. I didn't feel compelled really to get out of the van and sit in direct sunlight for any period of time. What was really interesting, though, is that the humidity was extremely, extremely low. So when you would get outside, even though it would be like 35 or I think it was almost pushing 40 degrees Celsius at one point, you're really, really hot in the sun. But if you can get out of the sun and just sit in the shade, then it's bearable, which is amazing because where I come from in Ontario, generally the high temperature heat, and yeah, we will get high 30s at times, uh, is also accompanied by super high humidity. And when it's like that, you just can't get out of the heat. But for whatever reason, when it's dry, and this is really my first time experiencing uh, this low of humidity, you get out of the sun, into the shade, and then it's all of a sudden 
kind of comfortable again. So I continued uh, north on 97, and you go through, well, you get into really what's called Kelowna, and Kelowna is sort of divided into two areas. The first one is West Kelowna, which is on one side of, of the bridge, which crosses Osoyoos Lake, and then there's Kelowna proper. The bridge that goes across, it seems to be continually jammed with traffic. Um, I I just, I don't know, I, I crossed it like a non-traffic-y time. It was probably just midday or something. And this bridge was just totally jammed. Uh, so this is quite a busy town. And I was surprised that Kelowna is actually the third largest metropolitan area in British Columbia. They have a population of about 144,000 people. I navigated through all the traffic of town and made it to my next host's location, which was in Kelowna proper, uh, but in a little bit less busy area, sort of on the outskirts. And it was actually a vineyard where I was able to do a bunch of wine tastings and I got to enjoy, well, they sold me a bottle of what was a, an organic wine, uh, which I drank <laughs> to myself <laughs> and then I promptly fell asleep for the night so I definitely had a good sleep the next morning uh, I relaxed at the vineyard for a little bit and took a walk around really really beautiful place uh, just absolutely gorgeous and I headed out down to what was going to be my next stop which is EC Manning uh, provincial Park. Now, my GPS took me along a little bit different highway. It was called 97C, which sort of springs out west, out of West Kelowna, and takes a little bit roundabout way, avoiding uh, all those towns right directly in the Okanagan Valley. Now, this highway was really beautiful and it really struck me there's just tiny little towns maybe 10 houses a piece and you're winding through the mountains with little lakes mostly on the right hand side and I actually that <laughs> this day I stopped at a few and had some casts truthfully I didn't catch anything but it didn't matter because it was just so beautiful and there were not many people on this road so I just stop at a little lake here, you know, have make something to eat for lunch, have a few casts, can carry on. Uh, I, I went swimming in another lake that had a little beach, and it was just little lake after little lake, really, really pretty area. You know, I could almost see myself uh, living along this road. You know, there's these idyllic pastures with the little tiny lakes and the mountain backdrops. It was almost something had like a Bob Ross painting. I really, I really liked it. Eventually, as I headed along this road, I hit a town called Princeton, which is a little town about an hour from E.C. Manning Provincial Park. And when you hit Princeton, you're basically crossing into what they call the Simlikameen Valley. I'm Sorry for anybody that lives there. I completely butchered that. I don't know how to pronounce it, um, but that's what I was told. So through Princeton, you continue along, and eventually you do get to the Provincial Park. 
keep in mind that on this section of the drive, you're actually leaving the Okanagan Valley, you're heading up that mountain range, and then you're getting into the next valley. And again, the landscape changes again into a typical mountainous landscape with lots of pine trees, and you're leaving that desert climate of the Okanagan behind. When I got to E.C. Manning, it actually, it's a really neat park. So when I got there, I didn't know a whole lot about it. I just pulled in and I pulled into the first campground that I came across, which was called the Mule Deer Campground. And I was surprised because, so something to know, most campgrounds, if you come late and the park office is closed, which was the case here, I had been driving all day, you can just take a site. Uh, that's vacant, obviously. Check in to the front office the next day, let them know you stayed, and then find a site uh, for a subsequent night. When I got into this particular campground, all the sites were actually first come, first serve. So what you would do is uh, you would pull into the site and then you put your name on a like a little clipboard uh, out front, and I believe your license number and then the next day or whatnot, you would go to the office and pay. But that's how it worked all the time. So all the sites in this campground, now EC Manning has numerous, numerous campgrounds within it. Uh, it comprises a very large tract of land in that valley. I think most of the campgrounds, if not all of them, operate on this first come, first serve principle, which was actually really quite refreshing because a lot of the parks uh, we had been talking about and that I had come across previously on my trip were booked in advance. Uh, they were really busy. Uh, everything's booked. You, you kind of end up in some overflow area or you get some kind of crappy spot because you just pulled in and you get the leftovers that people didn't book online. Or you have to book it online and then you're faced with these online booking fees and registration fees that end up making the campground, you know, go from your $30 a night site and then a, a $9 online booking fee and a something else fee, a park pass fee, something like that. Anyway, this wasn't like that at all. You just pulled in and the sites were first come, first serve. And I think they were probably like 30 bucks a night. So I was really impressed with that. Anyway, I got into my site and I snuggled in for the night. Now, the next morning, I woke up early as it was surprisingly cold in the van. I did not think to turn the heater on having just come from the Okanagan Valley but my outside thermometer said it was actually eight degrees Celsius. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing about being in the mountains is how fast uh, not only the weather can change, but also how fast the evening comes, at least twilight. Uh, you'll be in the mountains, and then as soon as the sun starts to go behind the peaks of the mountains that are surrounding you, especially when you're in a valley, you're just in twilight and you might be in twilight for a few hours. So even though it's midsummer and sunset officially might be nine or 10 PM, twilight actually starts at say like six or seven. And 
in this particular location, the temperature would start to drop really fast. I didn't think about that. So I woke up uh, really cold in the van. Anyway, I went out and decided to take a little hike. So I went to what was called the Alpine Meadow area. And after talking to the staff at the park office and figuring out what I was doing, um, they had provided me with a map, of course. They told me that this area had just been opened that day. In fact, it was the first day that they had opened it the season. So I drove up a little bit of a, a hill and there's a parking lot. And the parking lot was absolutely jammed, which I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm dealing with this thing again, right? Every time I go to a park, a provincial or national park, but most of the people just seem to be picnicking in this parking lot. Like there were tables and, you know, for as many cars as it could hold, let's imagine say 30 cars. There seemed to be like 30 cars worth of people just kind of sitting outside, you know, walking around. Uh, or having something to eat or sitting at picnic tables. So I thought, well, I'm going to take one of the trails. And I got onto this trail that was supposed to show uh, some of what they call the subalpine flora. Okay, <laughs> they were the same as everywhere else. There were some pretty flowers and stuff like that, but nothing really that I hadn't seen so far. Nonetheless, it was a nice hike. Uh, when I was on the top of the ridge, I noticed a large... like. I think it's a microwave relay tower. So it'd be some sort of communications tower up on the summit of one of the mountains. And that sort of leads me into a question about why my reception was so poor. And at so many points while I was in the mountains, I literally had no reception. And then when I did have reception for my phone, uh, typically I might only have like emergency calls only or very, very slow data. And uh, yeah, I'd say probably as you drive through these areas, you might be lucky to have cell phone reception about 25% of the time. And I was wondering why, if there's this big uh, communications relay on the top of one of these mountains, why is it? And I even looked at my phone and I had terrible reception. And I'm with one of the large, I'm not going to name them because they're all equally terrible in Canada, but uh, I'm with one of the largest providers and yeah, my, I had really bad reception. So that was sort of an interesting observation. After my hike, the temperature outside was getting hot and I was getting really hot too. So I decided I was going to go down and check out something I saw on the map. There's a beach uh, just down the road from another one of the campgrounds. Uh, I think the beaches was called the Lightning Lake Day Use Area. And there's also a Lightning Lake campground. So I went down there and wow, what a beautiful beach. And really not that busy considering uh, how many people I could see in the park. Now, <laughs> I went in the water and let me tell you, the water was freezing. Like, is there anywhere in British Columbia where the water is warm? I don't understand what's going on here. Every lake is absolutely freezing cold. Nonetheless, I went for a quick swim, got out, uh, just sort of toweled off and hung around. I met an interesting guy that works in the park. It was his day off. He was just relaxing. And we talked about just, you know, some of the local stuff that uh, that he does in the park and, and what's going on. I thought that was really nice for him to take the time to chat with me. After my swim, 
I spent some time just cruising around the different campgrounds in the park. And I think there's probably about half a dozen of them. And I think all of them, actually going back to what I was saying previously, are first come, first serve. And that reminds me, what was unique about EC Manning is instead of paying at the desk for your site, what happens is, and I didn't find this out until I went and spoke to them at the office, actually a collector will come around to your campsite and take your money. And then in ex- they'll they'll get you to pull your name uh, and license plate number that you've written on the slip. And they'll actually put like a paid slip or a in-use slip on your site, which I thought was really cool. It seemed like an old school method, but it also seemed like a way to to keep the park open and available for anybody that wants it. So if you're ever thinking about going through that area, EC Manning is a great place uh, to to stop for the night for sure. Anyway, uh, end of the day, I settled in for the night. The next morning, I went down to the Lightning Lakes campground, and that was one of the only campgrounds in the park that actually had proper showers, uh, dump stations for trailers, flush toilets, stuff like that. So I took a nice hot shower, dumped all the tanks in the van, got it filled back up with fresh water, and I was ready to go again. I'm always amazed. This is just sort of an aside, I'm always amazed by how inefficient and unknowledgeable RVers of basically any kind are when it comes to the sanitary stations in a campground. I'm, I'd like to say kind of like moderately proficient at dumping the tanks. And what I mean by that is I understand how to dump the tanks properly Uh, for anybody Listening who is not familiar, there is a little bit of a procedure, right? You would hook your hose onto your trailer or RV or van in my case. You would dump the black water. So that's any water that would come from the toilet and human waste. Then you would pull, uh, you would close that, open another lever, dump what is called the gray water, which is water that comes from the sink. So the idea is that that would rinse any of the black water out of the hose and then close that valve. And if you have uh, fresh water available, you would rinse the hose out and, you know, put everything away. Well, the majority of people who are driving RVs don't seem to know how to dump the tanks. And I'm absolutely gobsmacked by that. It's like, it's almost like everybody is driving an RV for the first time. Now, this was the first sanitary station that I had ever used that actually required money. You had to pay, I think it was like $2 or $5, you would put into it and it would unlock the the flap to the tank where you would dump your tanks. And once again, you know, I was like, why are these parks trying to extract more money from you when you're obviously staying in the park? You're patronizing. They had a little general store that I would pop into. You could buy snacks, uh, beer, stuff like that. And uh, 
other things that you could purchase. There, there's a lodge. You could have a sit-down meal, and then you go to dump your tanks, and they, they want to charge you $5. Anyway, so after watching people bumble around with this, getting to the front of the line, discovering, okay, now I actually have to pay, and being like, I don't even know if I've got the change that this machine takes, I just pushed on the lid, and it turned out the machine was broken. So they're really serious about collecting money from you <laughs> in any way they can but at the same time they're not serious enough to upkeep the machinery that's meant to collect the money anyway just an interesting observation once i had all the affairs with the van in order i set out west on highway three uh, towards the vancouver area and as I was driving through the mountains uh, on my way to my next host's place, which was in Abbotsford, I noticed that the highway seemed to rapidly deteriorate in terms of quality. It was full of cracks and potholes all of a sudden. And that's really hard on my van, especially considering I had just filled up on water and everything. So I'm at basically my maximum weight and I'm driving uh, a van where basically the wheels are directly below where I'm sitting. And it was just like bang, 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 going down this road. One thing that's kind of cool about BC, uh, and not the poor quality of this road, but is when they are fixing a road, they'll have a sign and say, you know, road repairs in progress cost $3 million. And I like that. I like that they tell you how much it costs so that, you know, maybe when it's done, you can be like, okay, this, this looked like a $3 million job. Or you could be like, hey, we got ripped off. You know, what's going on here? Nonetheless, this highway gets really bad um, heading west out of EC Manning. As I started to approach uh, the Vancouver area, it was the first time that I saw mountaintops shrouded in clouds. So instead of looking up and just seeing the tops of the mountains, now I'm looking up and I can't see the top of the mountains are completely obscured by like clouds or mist. And I was wondering if this is a phenomenon that happens as you start to get closer to the coast, because I had not seen that at any other point on my travel so far through the mountains. I do know there is something that happens where the uh, air is forced up over the mountains off the coast and it causes it to drop any moisture in it. That's why Vancouver and Vancouver Island, they're so rainy all the time. And then you end up with that subsequent dryness on the other side that we get, say, like in the Okanagan, where it's well, basically a desert in the southern part. And I, I just, it was a strange observation because I hadn't seen that before. So I'm thinking that maybe that has something to do with it. As I got closer to Vancouver, the highway switched to something I had never seen, which is called a variable speed limit highway. So I actually had to look this up. Um, so according to the province of British Columbia, the quote, goal is to improve driver safety during unfavorable conditions and reduce serious crashes in areas where weather patterns are prone to change quickly, end quote really interesting. So you're driving down the highway and there's a big digital sign that says variable speed highway, current speed limit. And then in this case, I believe it was hundred kilometers an hour. Never seen that before. I think it's a great idea. 
if they know that there's a storm coming in or some kind of bad weather, they could slow down the max speed limit because you've always got those idiots who don't drive to conditions. Thought it was great. Wondering why they don't implement this in more places in Canada. Uh, seemed, like, seemed like a brilliant idea. As I continued further along Highway 3, the pine trees of the mountains gradually gave way to uh, more of a mixed type forest, and I could start to see some deciduous trees, some leafed trees on the sides of the road and on the sides of the hills. And the humidity changed, and it was strange. It was like I could feel it. It went from a kind of a dry air to humid. It reminded me immediately of being back in Ontario because... The heat, uh, it was say it was about 30 degrees, all of a sudden felt so much worse. You know, I had to check the uh, thermometer on my van and I was like, oh, okay, the, it's only 30 outside, but I could, I could feel the humidity and the air felt noticeably thicker. And I'm assuming that's because it was coming off the ocean. It was at this point that I also noticed something strange going on with the temperature gauge of the van. It was barely registering above the cold mark, which was unusual because it was quite hot outside. And I stopped, I checked the coolant level, it was fine. So I'm thinking that the thermostat might be stuck open. I had previously installed a new thermostat in the van and I installed what they call a safety thermostat. And I say it like that because that's how it's spelled, like safe dash T dash thermostat. And the idea being that if the thermostat were to fail, instead of failing closed and preventing the coolant from flowing through the engine, the thermostat will always fail open. So when it does fail, at least you're getting cooling. And I'm wondering if going through all those hills, when I was in the Okanagan uh, and kind of being on the verge of overheating the van, broke the thermostat somehow or cooked it and caused it to just remain in the open state. Anyway, I continued on my way uh, eventually to my host in Abbotsford, which I would describe as a suburb of the greater Vancouver area. Now, officially, they say that Abbotsford is located just outside the greater Vancouver area. Um, it is the fifth largest municipality outside of Vancouver in all of British Columbia, and it feels very suburban. So close to a lot of the towns in the Golden Horseshoe area around Toronto, where you'll have the main downtown city, and then you can drive for miles and miles and miles, and the city gets progressively less urban and more suburban. So that's where I was going to stay the night, and I pulled into my host's place, checked in, and nice guy, uh, we got to chat for a little bit, It was it lived in a cute little neighborhood, and I still had some time, so I took my $50 bicycle, which I bought in Regina, took it off the back of the van, and decided that I was going to go find a place to eat. So I went down to a local sports pub, and this was the first time that I ate like a legit full-on meal with a drink for under $20. And it was a roast beef dinner. <laughs> and it was good. So I hung around this place and I had a great meal. 
chatted it up with the locals a bit, had a pint, uh, maybe more than one pint. I was only riding my bicycle. Uh, hopped back on my bike, made it back to the van, and I settled in for the night. In terms of lessons learned or general observations in this part of the journey, I've got a couple. One is obviously, and I think I repeated this on a previous episode, but watching the temperature on your vehicle, I spotted that my van was dangerously close to overheating a number of times when I was driving through the Okanagan. And I also spotted that weird problem with my temperature gauge that I'm having. And I'm not quite sure if I'm going to deal with that yet or not. Uh, I don't think that it's critical, probably not worth something fixing, uh, something to fix on the road, but it is definitely a good thing to be always watching the temperature on your vehicle, especially when you're going through the mountains. Secondly, uh, camping dump stations. Uh, I've never seen one where you have to pay. So, I'm going to carry some change, make sure I always have some change in the van in case I come to that situation again, because had the machine that uh, the, the little electronic gate that would allow you to either dump or not, had it been functioning properly, I would have had a problem. I, I waited in line watching people goof around at this waste station for a solid half an hour before I got to the front and realized it was a pay station. And, I'm going to need to keep some money in the van. Otherwise, I would have just, I guess, had to drive through and go find change or something somewhere. And the third thing are the first come, first serve parks. Now, I'm going to have to do some digging and find out how I can identify which parks are first come, first serve, as opposed to online reservations. But I really liked that. And it seemed like there were more available spots as a result of that. And also the people in the park itself, I don't mean park staff, I mean the other campers, they seemed friendlier, less territorial over their campsites. It wasn't like, I've got this site booked and I've had it for two weeks and we book this site every year. Everybody just was pretty relaxed. And it seemed quite common to see a neighbor, you know, I stayed in the park for two nights. The first night, Everybody around me switched, and I ended up switching too. I upgraded to another spot closer to the river. So that's neat. I, I really like that idea. It's a little bit old school, but I think if you can find them when you're on the road, it'd be a lot easier to get a spot, and it's a lot nicer because you don't have to worry about competing with people who uh, can book something six months in advance on the internet. Anyway, that is it for the podcast this week. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, I'd encourage you to like, subscribe to, and hit the notification icon on your podcast platform of preference. And of course, you can always find me on my Instagram at roadtrekken underscore podcast. And finally, I would like to remind everybody to be kind to one another and keep on road trekking. Bye.